It's time for a Big Blue Kickoff Live. Nobody can ever tell you that you couldn't do it because you did. On Giants.com. You know what I saw? New York Giant Prime. And the Giants mobile app. 17-14 at the final. One touchdown, we are world champions. Believe it, and it will happen. Part of the Giants Podcast Network. Let's go out there like a bunch of crazy dogs. Have some fun. Welcome to Monday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live here on Giants.com as well as the mobile app. He is Paul Dottino. I'm Lance Meadow with you for the next two hours. We have a special edition today. We're going to go all the way till 2 p.m. Eastern as we review the draft class and get feedback along the way in multiple ways. You can interact with us here on the program. 201-939-4513. That is option number one. Option number two, if you're a bit antisocial, you could turn to social media. Hashtag Giants Chat. And as a reminder, you can find the archive of this show on our entire podcast network on the Giants mobile app, podcast platforms everywhere, and at Giants.com slash podcast. So the marathon is over. We have 11 players that were selected by the Giants, a very big draft class. We will break it all down. Also discuss what Joe Shane and Brian Dable had to say about the players. But, Paul, I actually thought it'd be appropriate to start this show by doing a 2023 mock draft for all seven rounds. What do you think about that before we review the 2022 draft class? Your thoughts? We could call it the mock draft 0.5? Correct, yes, or 0.6 or 0.7. I think we should save ourselves some movement up towards zero. So, you know, I'm willing to start as far back as you would like. I just thought maybe that would be appropriate. You can never start too early, of course, right, Lance, in terms of projecting 2023. Is there anyone besides you, Bill Polian, and myself who detests mock drafts more? I'm not sure, but I'm willing to put myself certainly in the ring with anybody who would like to compete for that title or that label. The other category that I'd like to throw myself into in terms of grading Every draft class, even though they have not been fitted for helmets yet, we can try to find a way to squeeze that in towards the latter part of the program. <laughs> I just I want you to at least keep track of all of these things, Paul, because obviously we have a lot to cover. But I mm. thought we'd prioritize and start yeah. with the most important mm. aspects. You we know, did, it, of course, there are some yes. things, Lance, that we are so in lockstep on. And I know people probably don't even believe that because sometimes we butt heads. But but on these things. We are so in unison, it is not even funny. And it's this annual disclaimer that we have to continue to remind people, not just a day after the draft is totally completed, but we always have to remind them for the next three years until that three-year tenure has gone into the books and we can truly evaluate guys from the class that was drafted. No doubt about it. That's why this is an appropriate time. Not that we're going to do this on this show, but if you wanted to have a conversation about 2018 or 2019, we've got some substance. We have some value in doing that because we're now a few years removed from those prospects. But today, we're going to focus clearly on 2022. So we've had shows and we've had Giants Huddle podcasts along the way, and you can check that all out on Giants.com as well as your favorite podcast platforms in the Giants mobile app. So instead of going necessarily into great detail with specific players, I think a good way to start, Paul, is big picture perspective. And this goes back to Joe Shane in the last presser, once they made their final selection in the sixth round, he was asked about what your goal was ultimately when you entered the draft what did you want to walk away with and the two terms that I think perfectly summarize what they ultimately accomplished and of course we haven't seen anything on the field yet we can only operate based on paper versatility and depth those were two things he mentioned 
they were looking for in this 11-player draft class. And I think if you look at what they added on the offensive line, three players in conjunction with free agency, we're talking about nine players total new, but if we remove the international player, because right now that's a bit of a question mark, eight have a legitimate shot certainly to compete for a roster spot. So I think you address that. Then you look at the secondary. You added versatility in terms of corner and safety. You added a player to serve as an insurance policy behind Blake Martinez, who is still recovering from a torn ACL. And then you add a wide receiver in Wandell Robinson, who protects yourself from injuries because all of these guys on the current roster have question marks there, but also a versatile player in his own right who can help mimic perhaps what the Chiefs and the Bills did in terms of getting players out into open space and allowing them to do a lot of the heavy lifting. And certainly there were other positions they addressed, but that to me, Paul, is one of the biggest takeaways, the biggest themes. I'll add a third thing for you, Lance, and I was talking to Coach Brian Dable after the press conference, and speed was also a big theme. Sure. For guys who were not in the trenches, because obviously they took offensive and defensive front players, uh, the the back-end players, whether it be the receiver or the guys in the back seven of defense, all have good speed for their respective units. And that was not something that should go unnoticed. No doubt about it. And I think when you look at today's NFL – and you look at also who's in your division, because that was something also Joe Shane said he takes into consideration, especially when he was in the AFC East, right? You're always thinking about what do you need to slow down the New England Patriots? It's no different when you look at what Dallas, what Philadelphia, and what Washington showcase. And I think if you look at all three of those rosters, and we're not going to get so ahead of ourselves in terms of project what these teams are going to look like, but I think it's fair to say those teams on the offensive side of the ball certainly present speed and versatility in terms of the running backs and the wide receivers. So that's more of a reason why, to your point, on the back end of the defense, you want the ability to match up with that. And also, you know, since you went in the direction of defense, let's start there with respect to Wink Martindale and how he operates and how that defense, going back to his Baltimore days, is very blitz-happy. You know, you put secondary players sometimes maybe in a precarious spot for the lack of a better phrase, meaning you're expecting them to cover. You're expecting them to do things without necessarily having assistance. It's more of a reason why, Paul, you need speed in mm -hmm. addition to coverage because if you have a quick, fast guy who can get open down the field, you may not have a safety who could be blitzing on a given play. You're going to need to handle yourself all alone on the back end. I totally concur with that, Lance. And I think, you know, when you consider – uh, what not only Martindale wants to do on defense, but even on the other side of the ball, Dable and Kafka come from two very progressive offenses that rely on getting guys in space and guys who have quicks. For example, the Bills had Cole Beasley, and yep. he was one of Brian Dable's favorite, if not his favorite player on the team. Kafka had Tyreek Hill with Kansas City. Now, you know, I bring this up because... There have been a ton of pundits who have criticized the Wandale Robinson pick. And to those out there who know that I'm not, I'm not a guy who necessarily wants to pack the room with Smurf receivers, I always want to have a skyscraper in the building. You guys know that. I've been preaching this for decades. And because the Giants do have a skyscraper in Galladay, and they've got another pretty tall receiver in Darius Slayton, I don't necessarily think that it's terrible if you have a good mixture in the room. In fact, I think it's good to have a good mixture. I'm, I'm against stocking the room with all guys who are six feet and under. 
as long as you have at least one or two guys who are going to be a big part of your receiver rotation who are of some tall and length uh, 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 character, I'm good with that. As long as there's a mix. You, but to me, you need to have that tall, lengthy component to have a complete wide receiver room. That's just me. There are other people who'll say, forget it. I just want the most talented guys. I want the fastest, quickest guys. And I don't care about their length and their height. Well, I do. And they've got two guys who qualify as taller receivers. Okay, so let me make that clear. So that's why I don't necessarily squint and, and grit my teeth at Wendell Robinson. Okay, but now think about this for a second, Lance. I just mentioned Beasley and Hill. This guy, Robinson, is cut out of that cloth. He is one of those kinds of guys. And we know that Dayball and Kafka come from an offense that had those kinds of guys. It stands to reason that they have a very specific chapter in their playbook that they believe is critically important to what they want to do. And so that's one of the reasons, I'm sure, that they wanted to go get this Kentucky wide receiver. I mean, look at the kid's production. Over 100 catches last season, 1,300-something yards, I believe, seven touchdowns, runs in the four fours, was also a guy who ran a lot of rushes out of the backfield, okay? So you're going to be able to use him sometimes as a halfback. You're going to use him as wide receiver end-arounds and jet sweeps. You're going to use him as wide receiver screens. He is, and remember, he also returns kicks. So he's what I've called, and you guys know this. I started this using this term last year when uh, Kadarius Tony got here. He's a G receiver. There's an X, there's a Y, and there's a Z. Well, there's a G. The G is the gadget receiver. Because he does all kinds of funky things in your offense. Stuff that's kind of nouveau, a little bit off kilter, a little bit out, out of whack. The weird stuff. The gadget stuff. He's a gadget receiver. He's a G receiver. Now, here's what I'm thinking, Lance. And I don't know this for a fact. But you remember when Joe Shane said that he had already established four rounds of the draft board in Buffalo before he came to the Giants? You remember Correct. that? Yep. Chances are... He knew that Beasley was going to be a cap cut. He probably knew that the Bills were going to be looking for another gadget receiver. He may have very well known how high that the Bills graded Robinson and how much they may have wanted to draft him. And I don't think it's a stretch to suggest that Kafka knows how important that the Tyreek Hill element is to the Kansas City offense. And, of course, they've traded him since. And maybe Kafka had a clue as to how much Kansas City may have coveted Wandell Robinson. And so maybe, with those things in mind, it enhanced the Giants' desire to draft him in the second round, where outsiders, maybe not having that perspective, would scratch their heads and say, was it necessary to take this player this high? I'm simply giving you logical possibilities that we can't possibly know, but certainly could have existed. Yeah, I wouldn't rule that out. I think that's a fair point because you figure that Shane had a decent idea about some of the players that the Bills were targeting based on feedback that he heard back from the scouts before he left. But I think the bigger rationale 
was the fact that Dable, if you just look at the Bills personnel, and also you brought up Mike Kafka too, because it's going to be a combination of both of their philosophies, but if we just focus on the Bills here for a second, and this was a player also that was brought up in one of the pressers following the draft selection, not just Cole Beasley, but Isaiah McKenzie who was on Buffalo, Paul, and he was sort of a running back slash wide receiver. Exactly. Not a tall guy. So my point is, Dable, I don't think he's the type of guy that says, I need A, B, C, and D in terms of versatility and size of my personnel, meaning if I like their skill, I'm going to build my offense around what they do well. And I think you got a taste of that in Buffalo because he had a few guys on the smaller side. So I think Shane understands that. We know Shane has gone on the record because of their days back together in Miami, we use the Charles Clay example when the Dolphins drafted Charles Clay and Shane said, Dable gave me an exact set of criteria, what he wanted out of a tight end. Clay fit the bill. So I don't think it's any different where Dable probably may have described a Wandell Robinson-esque type of player to Joe Shane. And he looked through the charts and spoke to the scouts and Robinson was atop the list. I'm sure that was probably a big part of the conversation. We're not saying the Giants are going to duplicate Buffalo because at the end of the day, they don't have Josh Allen. They don't have Stephon Diggs. They don't have a lot of other talent. But I think if you look at the skill set of some of the players on the roster, it's not crazy to think that Dable is going to try to move those guys in similar positions so that perhaps they could thrive. And As we well know, I think Kansas City was a good example of this last season, not to get off topic, but I think it's a relatable note, Paul. If you remember leading up to the Giants-Chiefs game last season, one of the things they had to deal with last year, I'm talking about Kansas City, was the two-deep safety look. And teams were basically saying, we're not allowing you to throw deep. You're going to have to be patient, Patrick Mahomes. You're going to have to dunk it inside or low down and then have those guys do a lot of the heavy lifting later on. And to the Chiefs' credit, I think they adapted very well. And if you remember, they went on that lengthy winning streak to ultimately help them win the division and make the playoffs. The reason I'm bringing that up is I think Kafka understands that you have to sometimes settle for the short yardage passes as opposed to the home runs. And I think Dable saw that based on sometimes Josh Allen just simply dumping it off. So the way that the league has evolved where most teams are saying we're not going to allow you to beat us deep You're going to have to do it in a patient, methodical way. I took that perhaps as another piece of the rationale into why they chose specific players, including Robinson. Well, consider that, excuse me, Robinson will not go downfield as much as either Shepard or Tony will. He's more of a short range receiver. So I concur with you because that would indicate getting the ball out quicker. And it would also indicate more of trying to get some yak yardage after the catch because you've got some open space and you've got a guy with some significant jukes to be able to make people miss and to find those seams and to get that yardage after the catch. All the more reasons why you could understand they might cover Robinson. And I think the other thing, too, here, Lance, to keep in mind is that when you look at the Giants receivers and you say, okay, they've got two slot guys already. Well, Sterling Shepard's coming off of a torn Achilles. Are we 100% sure that he's going to be fully healthy and able to give them the kind of season that he has put on the field in the past? Not at all. We well, don't remember, know that, and, and right? Not to cut you off, Paul, but remember, the injury he sustained very late in the year, too. Let's not mm-hmm. forget about that. It's, and that's a serious injury, Lance. Sure. That's not a hangnail. So, I mean, clearly, clearly, As part of this equation, I think Robinson is insurance 
against the potential of Shepard not being Sterling Shepard again. And, as we also know, Kadarius Toney did have some injuries last year. He wasn't available for all 17 games. And so if the slot receiver and the gadget receiver, the G receiver, is so important to this offense, I think the Giants decided part of this thing is we really need to protect ourselves and make sure that we've got one of those guys so that if Shepard isn't right or can't go or Tony has to miss a game, we still have a guy who can execute those two and a half chapters out of our playbook because it is a big deal to this offensive staff to have a G receiver. It's clear to me that based on what they did with Buffalo and Kansas City, these two coaches come from a philosophy that says the G receiver, the fourth receiver, if you will, next to the X, Y, and Z, is a very significant component of what they want to do. So when you put all those things together, you can certainly come up with some rationale and logic for why they decided they needed to get Robinson where they did. Now, there's several other topics that I want to delve into with you, Paul, and we'll do that as we move forward. Maybe a sleeper pick that could have an impact that went a little bit later in the draft. And we'll also further break down the day three picks because we didn't have an opportunity to do that after we got off the air on Saturday with our special based on what transpired throughout the course of round four, and then we cut ourselves off. We weren't able to be on during rounds five and round six. So we'll do that as we move forward, but let's try to mix in some phone calls here along the way. 201-939-4513, hashtag Giants Chat. Ben is in Morristown. He gets us going. Ben, welcome to Big Blue Kickoff Live. What do you got for us? Thank you, and I just want to say I've been listening to podcasts for almost a year and i finally figure out how, how to uh, listen to you guys live uh, so that well congratulations <laughs> on accomplishing that feat i know like yes. every night i listen to the podcast and I'm like how do i get on so i can get you know listen to it live and then i googled it and here i am so anyway well, here's the my, good my news now is, tonight you can watch the yankees game without distraction I'm a Mets fan. Come on. All oh, right. See, so you can watch uh, the you made Mets a big assumption there, Paul. You made a very, very big assumption. I did. You got to be careful. Well, yes. you can watch baseball. How about that? That's right. So, at, at any rate, so, yes, it, if if we had concern at, at the slot or the G, whatever you want to call it, that's fine. My, my beef is day two, none of these guys are are – going to battle for a starting spot this year, right? Maybe next year, not this year. So why do you take a WR4 when you have glaring holes at tight end, glaring holes at outside linebacker, inside linebacker? So I would have preferred, yeah, this guy, right, if, if he's great, he's productive. There's still three or four other wide receivers that would have gone before him, right? But we could have filled it with slots for like a Trey McBride, uh, a Troy Anderson, guys like that, Drake Johnson, guys that could that could fill in starting spots on the defense. Instead, we plugged a guy who's probably ranked like 20th as wide receiver as as consensus because, as you guys know, you have it's not only drafting for your need, but it's playing the field and understanding how other people are going to draft. I would have much rather they drafted. You know, a, a a guy like I said, like one of one of the linebackers or or a tight end, like the hybrid tight end that that will will start in the second round, and in the third round, the guy that they took from UNC, 
not very highly regarded. Like, I mean, again, no one knows, right? But he's not going to be battling for starting position. There were other guys. I, I mean, I would have, I would have taken that guy Raymond the tackle and see, you know, move someone else inside, like, or you know. So there, it, it's well, he could be in the I, mix. I, I just want to jump that, in here, Ben, because you threw out a lot, and you know, it's always good to go back and forth. He could very well be in the mix for left guard. I would agree with you. I don't think he's necessarily the front runner because they got Max Garcia right. and they have Shane Lemieux returning. But he also he's played four different positions, and I'm assuming you're talking about Azuda. Or are you talking about? That's right. Yeah, not, okay. not the other so, guy. I mean, clearly these guys went to pro to the pro day at UNC. Uh, so yeah, love but I guy, mean, but. to me, it's got nothing to do with going to the pro day. It's the fact that he's valuable regardless of what you may have read in terms of where he was ranked. Because if you're going to not necessarily be a lock for a starter, which is where you're going with that, and that's fine, then you right. better be able to play multiple positions. Meaning, I better be able to cross-train you and have confidence that if my other guard gets hurt, I could put you there. If my center gets hurt, maybe I could put you there. Or tackle. And not only was he versatile from that standpoint, but there was a series during a game where he played multiple positions within one series. So North Carolina trained him very well across the board, and that's why I think a player like him is extremely appealing if you're going to take an offensive lineman at that point in the draft. See, I, I think the caller's assumptions are kind of what's driving him a little bit off the road into the creek here. Because we told you for months, and, and I know I was very adamant about it, the Giants are going to draft an offensive lineman, probably an interior guy, in the third round. This was totally expected by me because they needed another guy who was going to compete at the left guard spot. By all means, Shane Lemieux doesn't have a lock on that spot. We'd like to think that he's going to be good, but he doesn't have a lock on it. And, and Garcia, who was signed off the Cardinals, yeah, he started a bunch of games but you'd be foolish to just hand him the spot. So they needed competition at that guard spot. They drafted a guy in the third round who they believe can compete for the starting job. So that checks the box perfectly for me. Exactly what I anticipated, and that's exactly what they got. And to boot, Lance is correct. His versatility just adds value. Now look at the other third-round pick, Cordell Flott. Now, you could tell me all you want about, well, he's not going to give a significant impact right away. But I'm going to counter to you that there's a lot of people out there, and rightfully so, who have questions about Darnay Holmes. We're not 100% sure that he is the slot guy of the present and the future. Darnay Holmes has had mixed results during his time with the Giants. I happen to like him. I think he's a good player, but I would have to admit he has been good at some points and at other points not been so good. So what does Flat come in and do? He immediately becomes competition at the slot, who hopefully will either make Darnay Holmes, you know, be consistent and better and push him, or maybe he'll steal his job and wind up being the starting slot guy, which means he'll play 65 or so percent of the snaps. So I think your, your initial assumptions about these third-round picks not necessarily being immediate help is kind of awry. And, Ben, the other thing that I want to respond to is your point about the tight end. And Paul and I actually have had conversations on this topic, but I think it's worth emphasizing. They could have very well taken Trey McBride, to your point, okay? But I think what you have to take into consideration, and this is where the GM goes to his coaches and says, what's your vision for the tight end? And Brian Dable made this clear in a post-game presser, post-draft presser, I should say, where he's talked about how last year there was a portion of the season they only had one tight end active, 
and that they utilize five wide receivers. I don't think if you ask Kafka and Dable, because even if you go back to Kansas City, Travis Kelsey was their main tight end. How many times did you talk about a tight end not named Travis Kelsey that did a lot of heavy lifting as a receiver or a jack-of-all-trades type of player? The answer is no. So I want to go to 2020, and I was looking back at this. The reason being is because Dawson Knox was a little bit banged up last year. So in 2020, the Bills had four tight ends. They had Dawson Knox, they had Nate Becker, Tyler Croft, and Lee Smith. No one played more than 44% of the snaps out of those four tight ends. That was Dawson Knox at 44%, Tyler Croft was at 27 Lee Smith was at 15 So why do I bring that up, Ben? Because he did not rely on one main guy. They mixed and matched. They used blockers, goal line situations. So I think Dable has the same exact picture in his head, and that's more of a reason why it wasn't a main priority to bring in a guy that's going to be the guy and play 95% of the snaps as your top Mm -hmm. receiver. This might be a good good time, and I I don't want to extend our caller too long, but this might be a good time to explain to you, as I understood it from the Bills radio sideline reporter, um, who's been around a long time and I respect very much his knowledge, he knows Dable extremely well. And he said to me, when I asked him before the draft, I said, you know, I love Jake Ferguson out of Wisconsin. I think he'd be a steal in the fifth. He wound up going in the fourth round to someone else. But I said, this is a guy I love. He's an old school, inline, wide tight end who can do everything. And he goes, yeah, but you know what? I know Dabes. Dabes Dabes doesn't want tight ends like that. What Dabes wants is he wants one flex tight end, and then he wants his tight end two to be a blocker. And that tight end two is only going to play a limited amount in certain situations and packages. But his tight end one, who's going to play much more often, is going to be a flex tight end. Well, when they drafted Bellinger, Bellinger is a blocking tight end. He's a Y. I was surprised because I thought – they would try to upgrade the flex tight end, that being Ricky Seals-Jones. I thought he was more of an insurance policy when they signed him. It's now obvious to me they don't think that way. They think Ricky Seals-Jones is going to be their flex tight end as a tall, lengthy, big radius target, and they drafted Bellinger to be tight end two. So they've also fulfilled another one of Dable's blueprints, as far as I can tell, pending something else happening. So we've already now gone through four rounds and justified every single one of those Giants picks. Gotcha. Well, thanks for your time. I, I, and, and I'll be calling in more often now. But, sure. I, but from my viewpoint, I, I think that second round may have fallen apart on them a little bit when Kyler Gordon went. And then I was sitting there just hoping for Andrew Booth, and then Minnesota jumped up and took him. I know. I think that's – and then would you, do you th- what do you think about that? You on on that, I totally to agree. I, I was in the studio. We were doing the television web show myself with uh, David Deal and Sean O'Hara. And when we saw Minnesota with that pick, I immediately turned to them and I said, there goes Booth. That's it. He's gone. And, and lo and behold. And, and then the Giants made the deal to move down. I can't tell you that they were going to take Booth, but certainly Minnesota did, and that's why they traded up to, to, to go get him. 
And Ben, appreciate the phone call. Thanks so much for weighing in. I think the other thing related to that last point, I go back to what Joe Shane said when he spoke to the media. And once again, we have no idea if Booth was on their radar. It's impossible to tell because there's just nothing that has been said publicly that would confirm that. Minnesota thought so, though. They wouldn't have made the trade. Well, listen, anything's (laughs) possible. Or Minnesota also could have thought that there was another team or two in the vicinity that could have taken Booth. So, you know, I think you got to look at it from that standpoint. But what I was going to add was Joe Shane didn't make it clear, and this is the only thing we can operate based on, that even before the day started, he had every intention of moving back. So that means that they must have had, the way I interpret that, Paul, is they must have had interest in a number of players. Why would you move back twice unless you feel good that there's a group of guys that are going to be in the vicinity as opposed to if you really love one guy in particular. So let's assume Booth, they had a love fest on. Then wouldn't you then, after you swap spots with the Jets, wouldn't you then say, let's just take our guy and not take any chances? But instead, they then made another trade with the Falcons to move five spots back. So, I mean, that would indicate there's a number of guys you're content with in the event some of them are taken. Oh, I don't think there's any doubt that they had a bunch of folks in their cluster, so to speak. But I think what happens is, and you know this as well as I do, Lance, when when teams go into this situation, chances are you have these potential deals in place where you've got penciled-in frameworks. And what one team will often tell the other team is, listen, if my guy is taken, if he's not there, by the time we get on the clock, we're good with this trade and we'll make the deal. But if our guy is there, the one guy that we're kind of targeting, then we're not going to make this deal. But they do pencil it in and sketch it out ahead of time. So I don't necessarily believe that that part of what you're saying holds a lot of water here because uh, the fact that they sketched out a deal ahead of time doesn't necessarily mean they did not want Booth. Well, and I'm not arguing that they didn't want Booth. All I'm saying is is that I believe there were a number of guys that they had interest in. I think that's a fair takeaway. Oh, sure. In sure. terms of if you're going to etch out two trades potentially that you would do before the draft starts, then you have to have a number of guys that you're interested yeah. in, Paul. I, I, think, I, mean, I think the pool of value must have been very close for a slew of guys for them to even think about penciling in a scenario. So I agree with you there wholeheartedly. And then, by the way, in looking at where the Giants actually took Robinson with the 11th pick in the second round, as you go down the list, it seems to me uh, probably, well, I don't know if the Patriots would have gone for for him, but certainly the Chiefs at 22, um, they wound up taking Sky Moore. Is it unthinkable to perhaps think that they may have targeted Robinson? At 22, instead oh, of Sky Moore? Especially since he's like a Tyreek Hill-esque type of player. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, and, and, and perhaps Kafka knew that. And perhaps, you know, he told them, look, um, if, if we don't take him here, we don't have another pick for the second round. We've got to wait all the way to the top of the third. And I'm telling you, he's not going to get there because the Chiefs also pick at 30 and the Bills are picking at 31. And you know Shane because of having – a knowledge of four rounds of the Bills draft board before he left, you know he knew every player that they were going to prioritize. Let's head back to the phone lines as we move forward here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. We've got Mark in Jersey City joining us. What's happening, Mark? Uh, how you guys doing, Sierra? Hi. The Bills, fan, Bills fans call it. 
I'm the Bills fan that calls once in a while. Just wanted to congratulate you guys. I thought your draft was pretty good, actually. I mean, I know Neil was Paul's probably. Paul probably did some sort of cartwheel when that happened. Not uh, Tibbs. I, Tibbs is the guy who who made me do the cartwheel because, as you know, uh, well, may not know, but around here in, in New York City area, uh, almost all the media. Uh, was was against Tibbs and said either they shouldn't take him or didn't want to take him, and I insisted that you absolutely had to take him. So that's the one that made me do cartwheels. I added Quanu and have Neil by by like uh, you know a nose and in my case an Italian nose which is a little bigger than some, but but I had Neil as a close second and I was very happy that they got him. I think all the right tackle. The right tackle experience probably swayed the swayed yes. the decision. Yeah, I'm sure that played. It home. helped. And the know, fact that it, the fact that Shane also said, "Why didn't you take Aquanu?" and he said, "Well, because he was already taken." <laughs> oh, that's, that's true. But they they got a chance to draft two guys that at one point or another were mocked in the as the first overall pick at five and seven. That's pretty. <laughs> that's not a bad. Uh, Absolutely, yeah, from a value standpoint, certainly. Absolutely. No, they were legitimately both mocked for the better part of two to three months until all of a sudden Walker ran to the forefront. But be that as it may, I um, Lance stole my thunder with the um, you, you, uh, Paul, you used Beasley. It was it's definitely the Isaiah McKenzie role that uh, Robinson would be um, would be used, and it was more of a look guy, kind of an eye candy guy, just something for the defense to like have to respect his motion, have to respect where he lined up, um, kind. Of, Nicole Hardman does the same things also opposite yep. um, Hill um, for uh, Kansas City. So I would look to those guys. And Tony is the kind of guy, he's like a Ferrari. He's the kind of guy you have to be very careful with because he's the kind of guy, he tweaks something, he he, oh, he ran too fast or he cut too hard and you know, something went. So I think Robinson would mitigate that possibility with Tony. You know, if he's a part of your guys' plans going forward. But sure, I, but I, I think, I mean, the Giants receiving core mark overall, as we outlined, has a lot of injury history. So, I mean, to me, it's not necessarily just Tony. It's Shepard. It's everybody that, you know, you could put Robinson on the field, whether he's big or small, especially if you can use him out of the backfield. If you're not requiring him to run a specific route, which you're not because of his versatility, then it really doesn't matter who else is on the field with him? Because I don't really think it's that much of a duplication. So to me, he's insurance for not just Tony. I think he's insurance for a few other guys that haven't remained durable. And Tony does run more deeper routes than you will see Robinson run. You know, Robinson Robinson is not necessarily going 15 to 20 yards downfield. Tony's capable of doing that. He's got more straight line speed, I think. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. You guys have had been pretty snake bit with the injuries um, <laughs> you think yeah. no i mean it's just that's an understatement you've been pretty stinkbit but you know he's not just i wasn't just trying to make a, a broad sweeping statement i mean you had a guy like that who's a rack monster you you know just give give have daniel jones get those layups just you know three to five and oh three to five turns into 10 to 15 right the one guy i think you the one guy you might have scooped up and taken from the bills was the guard in the third round because he was one of their top 30 visits. None of the other guys were, but I know for a fact he was. So you're talking about Azudu from North Carolina. Yes. Yeah, yes. who you're yes. referring to. Well, I mean, I think he's appealing to a lot of teams because, once again, you don't find many guys that have been exposed to four different positions on the offensive line. And I think teams value that, regardless of what your scheme is, because 
if they're not going to utilize you as a starter in year one, you better be able to play other positions. So I wouldn't be surprised if he was relatively high on not just the Bills and the Giants, but other teams' boards because of what he was asked to do. And he was part of one of the best run-blocking groups in 2020 when they had Michael Carter and Javante Williams, who each had over 1,100 rushing yards. So I think the league knew as a whole, especially based on what Javante Williams did in Denver as a rookie, that, you know, the guys responsible for helping them get out in open space certainly warrant some attention from that standpoint. Oh, no doubt, no doubt. And when you, I think you can only, you can only carry, most teams carry seven O-linemen, but there's a rule where if you carry, you can carry eight, you can carry, carry extra man on your game day roster, but it has right. to be like a tackle. It has to be you, like a Yeah, you can activate tackle. it. Well, no, you can activate an extra lineman. It's not, yeah, it doesn't have to be a tackle. You can activate an extra lineman on game day should you want, which is why... You know, teams usually are carrying nine on your 53. And then the guys you dress on Sunday, well, that can vary. But, yeah, I mean, and the Giants upgraded. That's We, we told you this, too. The Giants needed not just upgrade their five starting offensive linemen during this offseason. They needed to upgrade the back four. <laughs> yeah, right? Especially <laughs> since injuries, too, at that position as well. And, listen, Mark, we appreciate the phone call. We'll let you go on that Thank note. You, Thanks for weighing Thank in. You so, you know, that was clearly a priority. And we also mentioned that when you change your starters, guys who started last year who are still on the team move then to the backup position, which is not a bad thing because sure. then they have more experience, but you're not necessarily relying them on them on a daily basis. So, if, you know, some of them of even make win-win the from that standpoint. And some of them may not even make the team at all anymore. Of course. Because yeah. if you've upgraded that well – some of those guys will wind up being shown the door. Hey, Lance, I'm so – honestly, let me just say this to you. I'm very disappointed that you weren't on campus for the first round because you and I were totally in lockstep. Once again, another thing that we did totally agree on was that if the Giants had assertiveness and conviction about two players, don't trade down. Take the two players at five and seven who you believe – are premier guys who are going to give you some terrific production. And you and I were all over that. For some reason, John and Jeff were both much more in the camp of move down, get more picks. This team wound up with 11 picks, and they used 11 picks on 11 players. And wouldn't you know it, they used 5-7 and seven because they had conviction and slam your fist on the table attitudes about these two guys. So I wish I could have high-fived you on Thursday <laughs> oh, night. No worries. <laughs> no, seriously. Well, I really do because we were so all over that. Yeah. No, we definitely we discussed that because we agreed that this team was in need of two immediate game changers or people that have the potential to do that. And that's more of a reason why I wouldn't move down. I think also, not to put words in Jeff's mouth, and I think John a little bit came from this standpoint, they were thinking about getting an additional first-round pick in 2023, Paul, if you recall. Right. And a lot of fans were. But as I noted when we did our Giants Huddle podcast recap, I said there were nine trades in the first round. Not one of those trades landed a team a future 2023 pick, especially the Lions and Vikings, in which Minnesota moved down 20 spots. So that's all you needed to know. If there was no hope, if it was unrealistic to think that you could do that, more of a reason to stay at 5-7 and mm -hmm. seven and mm -hmm. grab the talent. And they actually, they did move back, as we were talking about, but they moved back in the later rounds, right. okay, where it makes sense where maybe the separation, Paul, between the players is not as immense, 
So it's understandable if you move six or seven spots back, you're not necessarily taking yourself out of contention. Or you understand the later you go into the draft, the more and more question marks come sometimes with the players as opposed to five and seven, where I think the percentage is much further in your favor. Well, I think the two of us significantly threw cold water on the fact that we didn't never we never believed that you were going to be able to get a first rounder next year. I mean, I know that was the wish list for both of them, yeah. and that's the only way it made any sense at all to me. And at least I might have taken that call and at least listened, but you and I both doubted that that call would ever come, and as it turned out, the league determined that that value was never going to happen for anybody in the top 10. Well, because I think also the biggest takeaway from that, Paul, is the league likes the draft class next year, whether it be the quarterbacks or other players, mm-hmm. and those teams are saying to themselves, why are we giving up that draft capital if we then may have an opportunity to grab a difference maker ourselves? I think that was part of the philosophy. And I always felt that in the back of my mind, and it essentially came to fruition. And that's more of a reason why it was more practical sure. for the Giants to take players at 5-7. and seven. All right, let's head back to the phone lines as we move along here on Big Blue Kickoff Live, special two-hour edition. We're going to go till 2 p.m. Eastern today as we fully recap all of the draft festivities. But before we do that, just a few reminders. Giant season tickets are on sale now for the 2022 season. In addition to ticket savings, membership benefits include access to exclusive events, experiences, pre-sales, and more. You can lock in your seats starting at just $100. Call 888-NYG-1925, or you can visit Giants.com slash tickets for more information. Also, don't miss your chance to experience a premier hospitality experience watching Giants games and world-class concerts in 2022 as a Giants suite partner. Limited full-season locations are available, or you can place a deposit for individual games. Call 888-NYG-1925, or you can visit Giants.com slash suites for more information. Let's head back to the lines at 201-939-4513. Don is in Connecticut joining us here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. Welcome to the program, Don. What do you got for us? Hey, how you doing? Hey, first of all, I loved the Giants draft. That was great, especially the Mighty Joe. You know, he was smart enough to take Thibodeau at five, knowing that he's going to get an offensive lineman at seven. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. What a great move! I mean, you know, take the take the defensive end. You know, you're getting one of your offensive line. There's no doubt it's going to happen. That was great. Perfect. I love the kid out of Indiana too. That was a great pick too. The um, linebacker. The only thing I wanted. My question is, is do you, I mean, and I, because I can't stand the, the hearing that the Philadelphia Eagles are also interested in this kid. Is there any chance you think the Giants might look at Justin Ross? Also, with like you guys are talking about their wide receiver problems, I mean, what's it going to cost you to give that kid a shot? Well, you're talking about obviously the kid from Clemson who surprisingly right. Right. went undrafted after he was projected, right. which also just goes to show you another th- example, two things from that, not to get off topic, but I think it's important to highlight and it piggybacks off of what Paul brought up. Number one, the way the media views prospects is not necessarily hand-in-hand in, hand in sync with the way teams view prospects. That's number one. Number two there's sometimes things that teams know about prospects that are not privy to the media 
and does not circulate. And that's sometimes why a player falls or doesn't get drafted. Now, I don't want to put him under any specific label. To answer your question with respect to his chances, and once again, also to make it clear, the Giants have not made any official announcement in terms of who they're bringing in as undrafted free agents. So we can't comment with respect to that. He obviously is not assigned with a team, but I think it also goes to Paul, and I'm curious your perspective, the limited resources that the Giants have. Remember, you got to spend money to bring in sometimes undrafted guys, especially if you give them mm-hmm. bonuses or whatever to make it more attractive. So if a guy like Ross, who didn't go drafted and wants to pick and choose where he wants to go, it may come down to money. You have to take that into consideration, and that's going to eliminate certain teams, especially the Giants, who don't have a lot of resources at this point. Correct. So I hope that answered your question. I don't know if, Don, you still no, there I, on the I, line? I get okay. it, but I mean, I'm also looking at the fact, you know, like you, you mentioned, with the Giants' injuries at, at wide receiver, I mean, and I understand the kid had the two fusions in his neck, but I'm like, I mean, if you if you had to give him a shot, I, at least, I mean, especially when I hear the Eagles are looking at him. Yeah, but that's not a reason. See, Don, what I disagree is, if you're going to sign a player specifically to keep him away from a rival, you have to have more at stake than just that, especially if you have limited resource what he did with respect Clemson. to the salary what cap. Clemson. What he did at Clemson. I mean, it's not just because of the Eagles. I'm also looking at what he did at Clemson. I understand the injury, but what he did at Clemson was phenomenal. I mean, <laughs> yeah, how can, you know, they need wide receivers. Like well, said, I mean, but remember, they just drafted a wide receiver, prone. too. Let's not forget about They drafted Robinson. They're injury prone. Well, true, but I think Robinson is part of protecting them from that standpoint. So, you know, you have to look at it through that standpoint. And actually, you know, now that I look at it, actually, and I'm doing more homework, he just, according to reports, currently signed with the Kansas City Chiefs. So he's not even a possibility anymore, to answer your question. (laughs) Yeah, because I'm looking at his profile, and it has there, he just signed with Kansas City. So there's really, there's no point of going beyond that. He's unavailable anymore. (laughs) There we go. Okay. Yeah. Uh, There you go, (laughs) Mahomes. All right, Don. Appreciate See, that's why there's so many movable parts, and we appreciate the phone call. You know, transactions happen left and right. It's hard to necessarily keep track of it, but I brought up his profile, and then now that I checked, I'm like, wait a minute. He just signed with Kansas City, so you don't have to worry about him going to the Philadelphia Eagles. You can sleep well from that standpoint. If it was a position, Paul, also on a related topic where they didn't address it in the draft, I understand you campaigning to go after a player, but considering they did bring in a wide receiver, it's not as if that position had not been addressed throughout the course of the weekend. Right. And and to be honest with you, Lance, I think we would probably agree again, and we're agreeing a lot these last few days, but I think we would probably agree again that as you looked at the Giants' depth chart and you said, okay, these are some of the areas where they could probably use either a starter or competition, and then these are the areas where they're thin and they could use somebody else to flesh things out. I think the only spot that they really didn't touch was the depth at running back. And apparently, and I'm not gonna, going to uh, tell you that, that anybody is signed or anything, but we do know for a fact that there are some players who did not get drafted. In fact, there's one particular running back, and I, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that he himself, the Florida State back, has himself uh, actually put out on Twitter that he is going to be uh, coming in to, to be with the Giants. That's just Sean Corbin out of Florida State. Um, he's 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 a good depth running back, and I, I like him. And quite frankly, you know, he has put it out there himself that he's going to be coming to the Giants. I don't know if that's going to be 
a a free agent deal or if it's a tryout. It's probably more of a free agent deal than it's a tryout. But he has put that out there. I can't confirm that. You can't confirm that until the Giants actually have a guy who signs on the dotted line. None of these undrafted rookie free agents are officially Giants yet. So he may or may not wind up being here. But I thought that was a very interesting and intriguing undrafted rookie free agent guy who uh, has already made it known that that he would be heading here. And and that would address somewhat the uh, puzzle as to why the Giants had not taken somebody in the draft at the running back spot. Well, and the other thing is I go back to the state of the Chiefs and the Bills offenses. I think running back relates to tight end. And the point I'm making, Paul, is not to say that they're not prioritizing that, but if you look at how the Bills utilize their running backs, you look at Kansas City. I mean, Kansas City, how many different running backs did Andy Reid and company utilize, <laughs> right? Yeah. Not to say that Clyde edwards Elaire, I get it, he was a first-round pick, but then after he was drafted and he had some injuries, but just the plethora of backs, the veterans they brought in, the Bills, Josh Allen was a big part of their running game as opposed to the conventional backs, and I understand Devin Singletary and Zach Moss were drafted. I get it. That's not the point I'm making. The point I'm making is if you're not going to utilize one guy in particular, especially knowing you still have Saquon Barkley on the roster, so everyone you're bringing in, Paul, is more of insurance, change of pace, why would you utilize a relatively high draft pick or even a mid-round pick if you know, just like Brian Dable's thinking tight ends, I'm not going to utilize this guy for 60% of the snaps. I just, to me, it's the old bang for the buck type of conversation. I think you're better suited bringing in an undrafted free agent or bringing in a veteran late in camp who can answer the call in terms of how you're going to utilize that player. Well, the other thing is, too, that type of player who fits into that category is going to be significantly cheaper. 100%. Than bringing yeah. in a draft choice or a veteran free agent. And you're not going to also be locked into that player for X amount of years. Mm-hmm. Because if you draft a player, even if it's outside of the first round, not to say that you have to keep them, but that's a four-year contract right there. You bring in an undrafted free agent, you could sign him for a year. Or you bring in a veteran free agent, you sign him for a year. Sure. Limited guarantee. So it gives you a little bit more flexibility from that standpoint. Let's head back to the phone lines here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. Lance Meadow, Paul Dottino with you. Marty is in Manahawkin, and he joins us. What's happening, Marty? Hey, Lance. How are you today? Doing very well, Marty. Uh, what do you got for us? Okay. I'm just going back to the uh, the fellow that called from uh, Buffalo before. Uh, he was talking about the number of... Uh, Offensive linemen that we dress uh, on Sundays now, but uh, you know they're saying it was eight. But I was under the impression the eighth was because of the COVID uh, problem. That's why they they added an extra lineman, and it you know that was going to continue, or they were going to do away with that. Just curious if you had heard anything. Last time I checked, they had said that all the rules regarding the roster numbers, including practice squad, were going to remain in play this year. Lance, did you hear anything different? I haven't heard anything different. I mean, that announcement was made prior to last season, Paul, to just clarify. Normally, we receive word relatively close to the start of the season or training camp, I should say. So I didn't hear anything after this past season where they said those are definitive guaranteed rules moving forward, but they did, to Paul's point, anything that was implemented in 2020 was rolled over to 2021. I haven't received official word as to whether or not they're going to install that moving forward without having to go through the renewal process, but I think it was effective. It worked, and since COVID obviously has not disappeared, I don't see why they shouldn't at least keep it 
in the mix, given the fact that we don't know how things are going to pan out in this yeah, upcoming I, season. I can't say if it was official, but I thought at the last owners' meeting there was at least an implication that they were going to keep all the roster rules the same. But either way, the point is you're going to keep nine offensive linemen on your 53 almost for sure. I mean, that's, that's the most common number that you'll keep regardless of whether or not you're going to be able to dress an extra guy on Sunday. Figure 959 on the 53 will be linemen. Yeah, and then you could put more on the practice squad. Sure. Well, that sounds good. I hope, you know, I hope they do continue with it. It was, uh, you know, it actually, you know, it, it puts somebody else in a job too, you know? Sure. Well, and if the union wants more jobs for the players, there's more of an incentive than to want those rules to be in place. So I don't think necessarily anything is in jeopardy that they're going to roll back to the old regime. But as far as the 53-man roster is concerned, there's no limitations, Marty. And I'm not saying you were going there in terms of the NFL saying you can only keep X amount of offensive linemen. And most teams, they tend to have eight guys ready to go unless, of course, you're hammered by injuries elsewhere and maybe you don't have that luxury. But normally you want somebody that could be the swing tackle then you want somebody that probably has the flexibility to play guard or center. God forbid you lose one of those guys. And then maybe another offensive lineman plays special teams or is used on, on field goal units or whatever it may be, punts. So, I mean, there's rationale to have eight offensive linemen dress on a weekly basis for all of the reasons I just laid out. Yeah, okay, sounds good. Just a side note, how's your buddy doing? Is he is he is he home now uh, enjoying his new addition or He is, yes. <laughs> to to our knowledge, he is home and his better half and his new addition is doing very well. Yes, indeed. Uh, glad to hear it. Thanks a lot. Hey, you got it, Marty. Appreciate the phone call. For for those of you who may not have been aware, John John Schmelk and Katie, his wife, uh had a baby boy at four o'clock in the morning, uh the night of the second day of the draft. And uh, my understanding. So technically, Saturday morning is when the child was born. At, yes. f- at 4 a.m. Yes. Well, that is Saturday, the last time. <laughs> no, I no. Checked. But I mean, I, okay. I, I sympathize with him. That's a, that's a tough hour. I sympathize with her, too. That's a tough 100%. hour to have to, to, have to give birth. Uh, and in any event, uh, so John uh, was obviously uh, with family, and everybody's doing great. We congratulate them for sure. Uh, we thought he might be popping on with us today. He did pop on with us uh, on the draft show uh, the other night on the telephone on Saturday, actually. So we kind of thought he might do it again today. So that's why we didn't say anything up top. But now apparently he won't be popping on with us today. So we want to at least get that news out there. Wish him well on behalf of all the callers and listeners. And uh, we certainly hope to have John stopping in at some point this week. And the, li- the little amount of sleep we got this weekend, I'm sure he got less. <laughs> yes, and he's yes, going to have much and much less moving forward in the upcoming weeks. It's going to diminish Pearson as the days continue. Something tells me, especially now that he's got two, that he's got to contend with over the course of the next And uh, now he's got to prep for the NBA yes. draft because the Knicks are going to be picking fairly high. Yes, but something tells me there's bigger priorities than Paul, <laughs> as opposed to speculating on who the Knicks are going to take. I don't know, slightly. I don't know. The Knicks draft speculation versus my child. I don't yeah. know. It's it's very hard for me to decipher between those two. I got well, you. We'll have to get back to him on that. There you go. Right. Let's move forward here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. Peter is in the Florida Keys, and he joins us. What's happening, Peter? Hey, guys. How you doing today? You're doing very well. How about yourself? Excellent, excellent. Thanks for asking. So, first of all, uh, rumor has it that uh, John's kiddo's middle name is Peter. Just wanted to say, awesome. 
great name. Are you saying that the child was named after you? Is that what you're trying to insinuate? I don't want to allude to that. <laughs> it sounds like it, though. It sounds like it. Well, listen, as someone who knows his family, I could tell you there is a presence of a Peter within the family. Yes, I don't know for a fact whether or not that had an influence, but something tells me that you're a little bit lower on the totem pole, Peter. I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news. Hey, man, I couldn't resist. I couldn't resist. No, understandable. Listen, you, you swung for the fences, and unfortunately, you fell short at the wall, and that's out number three. But we'll keep you on the line anyway. <laughs> thanks, for, thanks, man. So a couple of quick things for you. One's a draft thing, and another one's just a, a general a question I have for you. So I love the draft. I think uh, Joe Shane knocked it out of the park for his first, you know, sole draft here, you know, in the home. Um, the first two picks, I think, were absolutely spectacular. I think, um, I don't want to say every Giant fan, but pretty close to every Giant fan, feel ecstatic about how that whole first round turned out. I love the fact that he traded down twice in the second round as well. Um, my question for you is this. As I was watching Kayvon Thibodeau film, um, what I didn't realize, I, he's super dynamic, but what I didn't realize is only 254 pounds. Obviously, he must be a three-down player for the Giants to select him fifth, right? How does how had has he held up in the run, you know, in college? Is that something he's got to put on, like, 10, 15, 20 pounds to kind of hold that edge? Just wanted to get your opinion on that, and then I have a, a general question for you. Well, why don't you ask the other, and then we'll answer both to make it easy. Perfect. Okay. So, um, based on conversations from the, the general uh, owners meetings that we heard about months and months ago. I know there was a topic on overtime rules. Do you know if they ever voted or solidified how it was going to play out for this upcoming year? Or yeah, every every team now will have a possession, to answer your question. That's the new rule that was implemented, but it's only for the postseason. It's not for the regular uh, season. Just for the postseason. Yeah. Oh, cool. All right. That's all, all right. I got, guys. Great hey, you got it, you. Peter. Appreciate the phone call. His first question, Paul, was about Kayvon Thibodeau as a run stopper mm-hmm. in terms of his upside there. And, I mean, certainly he's not a one-dimensional pass rusher, I will tell you that. Well, he should gain some more power and strength as he physically matures and gets to this level. Uh, he is an impact pass rusher. Let's not make any mistake about Absolutely. that. That's why he's drafted, because he is going to cause terror for opposing quarterbacks. That's what they're going to utilize him for. Now, is he is he void against the run? Absolutely not. He certainly has the ability to play the run because he's got tremendous athleticism. But I do think it's fair to say he's going to have to add more strength and power as he tries to wart off some of the big offensive tackles in this league to potentially bring down a running back. Uh, it's... It, it, he is not a 100% purely polished product. And as Banks likes to joke all the time, you know, these rookies, you don't just add water. <laughs> You're going to need to do a little yeah. work. Uh, and and that's, that's, in all likelihood, that's where his work's going to come. Because he's got the speed and the quicks that are going to give NFL players trouble right out of the box. He's got a toolbox with so many moves that's going to give NFL players trouble right out of the box. His his basic work is going to have to be the strength and playing the run. 
That That's where he's going to have to improve as quickly as possible to become as complete a player as he wants to be. Yeah, especially the plays where you know you're not getting after the quarterback, but can you still make an impact, especially if the play is within your vicinity, meaning can you shed the tackle and then break off and then help in terms of the run stopping. Now, he did have a number of tackles for loss each season at Oregon, but that doesn't mean that that was necessarily just the running back or whatever it may be. So I think to me it's more of, you know what I look out of him, Paul? It's improving in the area of tackles that you may not even remember, sort of the dirty work that, once again, you don't get the flavor and the flair in the box score, but you were there, your presence was felt, or by you maybe wreaking havoc away from the play, you opened up a favorable opportunity for a teammate. Mm -hmm. That's the type of plays that I'm talking about with respect to improvement. And I think that's very fair, and I think that's something that Aziz Ojolari will be very interested in. (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and he himself improving in that category as well. Sure. The two of them. I mean, remember, both of them are far from finished products at this stage. I agree. Now, a reminder, we're going till 2 p.m. Eastern. We're doing a special two-hour edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. So if you haven't been able to get in within the first hour, we're going to keep the lines open to 201-939-4513, hashtag Giants Chat. Now, in the meantime, before we get back to some phone calls, I thought it'd be interesting, Paul, because... Once again, we haven't done a show where we really analyze day three's picks. I mean, we were on the air for the two fourth rounders. So I think a big picture question, I always find this interesting when we see the entire draft class. Of the late rounders, Mm -hmm. who would you say, in your estimation, has the upside and the potential that could maybe exceed expectations or make more of an impact in the early years of his career. I think it's always interesting because, listen, expectations need to be kept in check when we're talking about fourth, fifth, and sixth rounders, especially when you know there's other players with more talent and more experience ahead of them on the depth chart. But I think there's a few you can make a case for, hey, maybe they could create a niche, and maybe they can make a presence felt in year one or year two. It's interesting you ask that, Lance, because yesterday I posted a poll on my Twitter page asking that specific question. And I identified... And I did not look at your poll to cheat and take this topic. I no, want to make that no, very clear. I'm, I'm no, not, I'm not saying you were accusing me of that. I'm just saying. Okay. I just came up with it. I'm going to pat myself on the back to say that I was thinking perhaps along no, the same I, I, line. Because it's yes. a logical question. Sure. And, and I thought it would be something we could talk about on the show today. So I wanted to get a, a, a good sampling of what the fans thought. So I identified the productive sleeper as someone who's got to be between rounds five, six, and seven. You, the first four rounds, I don't consider that so much a sleeper. That's fair. So the question was for McFadden, Davidson, uh, 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 Beavers, and McKeith, McKeith and, and Beavers. And by far, uh, we had 580 votes that came into the poll. 56% said Darian Beavers, the linebacker from Cincinnati. And I totally concur. I, I was actually looking for him for the Giants' radar in the fifth round and was disappointed they didn't get him there. He is a guy who, at about 235 pounds, was 6'3", 6'4". He's strong. He's sturdy. Um, he tackles very well between the tackles. In term- well, he, he's sloppy with his technique, but he hits and hits hard. And he's physical and he's tough and he can blitz and he can play between the tackles. He's better off in, in that position because he doesn't have a lot of range in terms of his athleticism. So you want to stick him as an inside backer in a 3-4 or 
as Joe Shane said, you could even potentially have him blitz off the edge. There would be some potential to have him do some of that. And when, when, when I considered that versatility with the downhill, we talk about downhill running backs. He's a downhill linebacker. If people can kind of understand what I mean in terms of characteristics, when I, when I understood that going in, I said, I like this guy from Wink Martindale. I, I think, you know, remember the, what he does with the front seven, how schematically oriented he is in the front seven. I thought this guy would be a real nice pick in the fifth. They got him in the sixth, so he's got to be my favorite of those sleepers, uh, Lance. No, and I think you make a, a very strong case for that. I think what's appealing about him is for maybe some individuals that were not familiar with his history, he started his career at UConn. He played defensive end, linebacker, and safety, and then he transferred to Cincy where he played the last three seasons and was mainly a starter at weak side linebacker. So if you look at versatility, he screams that, especially if Marnendale is going to move him around. So, I'd be scared to put him at safety in this league, though. I don't no, think and, and that's, that's a good No, and that's completely fit. understandable. Yes, I'm, I'm completely with you there. And I think they also have other players that can fulfill the safety yes. role, too. I think he'd be more of a need elsewhere. I was going to stay on the defensive side of the ball, but I was actually going to go with McFadden, the linebacker out of Indiana. Mm-hmm. I thought you may have gone there, too. But you were thinking a little bit more in terms of Beavers and his versatility, and that's fine. Because McFadden, even though he's mainly a line linebacker the appeal for him and it's not to say that this is going to transfer over because offensive linemen are bigger and it depends on also how Martindale schemes but a he was consistent on an Indiana team that let's face it did not have a lot of star power within the Big Ten but he consistently led the team in tackles and tackles for loss so that I thought was something that stood out to me but also I was impressed Paul with his ability and how they used him in getting sacks and getting after the quarterback, meaning Indiana didn't shy away from giving him the green light and saying, hey, you know, if you have a path, go for it. And it's not as if we're talking about a guy that had two sacks here or a sack and a half, which, you know, you figure from a linebacker, right? He's not going to have a high volume. We're talking about somebody that had 12 and a half sacks in the last two seasons. Now, there's no guarantee that transfers over. I'm not campaigning for that, but the fact that the, coaching staff had the confidence in putting him in that position and knowing that Martindale is a very blitz happy type of guy Mm -hmm. who doesn't mind maybe giving his linebackers chances at getting after the quarterback I look at him as somebody that if he gets limited shots on the field that Martindale could very much lean on him so Micah McFadden would be my vote and then Beavers was going to be number two on my list and and there's a lot of logic in what you just said because he's a downhill linebacker yep he's another one of those guys the only thing I would say is that I don't think I can put him in as many different spots in the front seven as I can with Beavers. And knowing how much Wink Martindale likes to do that, that's why I went with the other guy. But I don't think there's anything wrong with your selection. Although I I do know, you know, obviously Indiana had a really down year football-wise. Well, that's why I preface my comments. Yeah, yeah. And, and, And you and I both know a lot of times when a team has a down year, it's easier for one guy to pile up some numbers in production Absolutely. because he's the only guy making plays. Sure, yeah. But I think it also says maybe something about his motor. Would you say sure. that, Paul? You sure. Know, even if you're not necessarily on a great team, and to your point, if it's lopsided games and maybe some of it does come in garbage time, for the lack of a better phrase, the fact that he's still out there, he's playing hard, and he's active, 
I at least would take that character trait as a positive that could be applied to the NFL. Is there any doubt, Lance, that both of these guys will probably do very well on special teams? And that's the other appeal, which we didn't even tackle, and I'm glad you brought that up because whenever we're talking about fifth, sixth, seventh round picks, it's an absolute. So the fact that a number of these guys have been exposed to that, and Beavers even made it a point, I believe, when he spoke to the media that he had mentioned there, or maybe I'm confusing him with another player, but I thought a few of them did specifically mention that they take pride in that and that they were on a variety of teams and that, you know, it may have been McFadden that had mentioned that when he became more and more of a defensive player in every down type of guy, that his limited special teams work became more of a thing as opposed mm-hmm. to being an active guy. But a lot of these guys were exposed, specifically Beavers and McFadden, because of their skill set. Right, right. So anyway, that's that, certainly that, appealing. That was that was one poll I had, and, and if we got a second here before we get back to the calls, the other poll that I put up, and, and this was uh, also one I put up yesterday, and we got a whole bunch of responses for this one. Uh, in fact, uh, 469 votes. I asked, um, I said the Giants Hall had a stud offensive tackle, an impact pass rusher, a scheme specific receiver, a rugged tight end, and depth at O line, defensive back, linebacker, and nose tackle. It appears depth at running back uh, may be coming via free agency. Uh, Shane said he's seeking more on defense. What positions would you like to add? 48% said defensive back. 30% went for linebacker. 10% defensive line. And there's a generic one I put for offense. Any place on offense. There was 12%, believe it or not, that said they would like to go someplace on offense. Now, for me, I thought that was a little curious because I'm I'm with the, the folks. I'd like to see them see if they could add some more in the secondary. But linebacker was really curious to me getting so many votes, Lance, because the one thing that we do know is that the Giants have a ton of linebackers in their room right now. Well, you may not like them. You may have a different evaluation than the Giants have of those guys. But they have a slew of linebackers. In fact, they can't even fit into the room. They're they're lining up (laughs) outside the door. There's so many of them. (laughs) And until we know what McMartindale thinks of these guys and what he wants to do with these guys, I think it's unfair to just automatically dismiss them with the back of your hand and say they need more linebackers. I mean, they just took two in the draft. How many more do you want? Well, I think it's also just a reflection of the scheme changing and a new coordinator, so you just don't know what their mindset is about the players. But from a volume standpoint, as you just mentioned, Paul, yeah, I don't think they're lacking. Though I will say this, and the reason why I think Joe Shane came out in that presser and said we're looking to add more defensive players than offensive players, if you just, from the visual standpoint, if you look at the depth chart on offense and defense, there's a lot more offensive players <laughs> on this roster. So I think he just wants to balance out the numbers. That's the main reason why he wants to add more defensive players. The secondary players. is the shortest position by far. No doubt about it. Secondary could use a little more meat and potatoes on the back end, as mm-hmm. I like to say. So I would vote for secondary on defense, and then I'd vote for running back on offense. And by the way, they have volume at the running back position. It's just that you don't know how these guys are going to be used, and you also don't have a lot of proven meat and potatoes on the resume. You know, especially when you get to guys like Gary Brightwell and Antonio Williams and Sandro Platzgummer, the international player. You just you don't have much on film in terms of regular season action. Matt Breed and Saquon Barkley are really the only two guys mm-hmm. 
that, you know, you could say, hey, I remember this season and this is what they did. So that's why I think you can campaign for perhaps another younger running back in the secondary. Also, keep in mind, it's a relatively young group. I was even, you know, going through the math numbers. They have six players in the secondary, Paul, that were drafted between 2020 and Mm -hmm. this year. Mm -hmm. I mean, that alone should tell you all you need. Sure. And maybe this is a good time to bring up that Joe Shane himself said after the draft was over, uh, they are sorting through the few dollars they have left, and they are going to look at veteran free agents who are either still on the street or may get cut in the ensuing weeks and months because they're not done with this roster heading into training camp. And so... Uh, could they potentially see a veteran running back or a veteran guy in the secondary that they're able to come to terms with because they want to add more experience uh, to the depth chart? Absolutely. We should not ignore that. This is not a finished product. Well, if you look at even the NFL landscape, there's going to be other teams that had conversations, right? And we talked about this on other versions of this program where going into the draft, they probably said, okay, we have – X amount of positions we're targeting. In the event that we go through the draft, we don't get a player at a position that we were hoping. We'll look at our undrafted free agent group. And then, as you just brought up, Paul, the established veterans. For example, Tyron Matthew, according to reports right before we went on the air, I don't know if anything became official, but it looks like he's heading to the Saints. Mm -hmm. So Tyron Matthew, right, veteran safety. He's been with the Texans. He's been with the Chiefs. New Orleans said to itself, okay, we didn't add a safety or we didn't add who we thought. So now we're going to go into the free agent market. And a number of teams, Paul, are going to do that. And then there's going to be a handful of other teams that say, let's see how rookie minicamp goes. Let's see how the offseason workouts go. And then right before training camp, then we'll add a player. We've seen the Giants do that in previous years. And part of that is, I think, because if you ask a lot of veteran free agents, they say, I'll show up at the beginning of August, and that's when I'll start working exactly. out. Before then, I'm going to do it on my own. And I'm sure there's been some preliminary conversations. I'm not talking about the Giants. I'm just giving you a big-picture perspective of what goes on across the NFL. No, you're 1,000% correct. Just because a guy is out there on the street right now doesn't mean he's no good and that nobody wants him. It may be because either he hasn't found the right spot or he's decided that he's going to, um, shall we say, cruise along through the summer (laughs) until the appropriate time to where he thinks he needs to come in and get ready. And the third element, Paul, that I'll add to the plate is an individual that is still recovering from an injury who is expected to be on track to be ready by camp, but at this point they're just focusing on their rehab and maybe Mm -hmm. teams are communicating with them and keeping on top of that player. So that's another element that certainly applies. Lance Meadow, Paul Dottino with you here. Monday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. We're taking you up till 2 p.m. Eastern doing a special two-hour program as we are recapping the entire draft class. So in case you're just joining us, we went over the big theme, versatility, depth, and speed are the big takeaways from the draft class. We were also just talking about a sleeper on the back end of the draft. You could certainly weigh in on those topics and more as we move forward. Let's head back to the lines, and we check in with Mike in Oakland. Mike, welcome aboard. What do you got for us? Hey, it's nice to be aboard. Um, yeah, I got a couple questions for you, but first I just want to say this is my favorite time of the year because just optimism takes over, and <laughs> I look at the roster, and, you know, I just – and and I and I uh, you know I got really fired up watching the press conference with Kayvon Thibodeau and Evan Neal together. Um, loved what both of them had to say, the attitude, um, just 
And all I could think about was, you know, how Paul likes to talk about Batman and Robin, but I feel like we got Batman and Batman um, at two of the most important positions on the roster because we got Aziz Ojolari and Kayvon Thibodeau now and Andrew Thomas and Evan Neal. And one of the things that Kayvon Thibodeau said was iron sharpens iron. And looking at those four guys, man, they, they all seem like alpha dogs to me. They all want to be great. They all got the physical characteristics. So I couldn't be more excited at having watching these four guys just go up against each other and get you know sharpened up for the year. Well, consider between Thibodeau, Ojolari, and Leonard Williams, the Giants now have three legitimate guys who can get to the quarterback. That's a big deal. Yeah. That, no, that, that's a big deal because, you know what, if you don't at least have three legitimate threats like that, it's, a, it's really, really hard, really hard to be able to uh-huh. command respect and to throw some jitters into the other team's offense. Yeah, I think, though, the jury is still out as to whether or not they have multiple Batmen. I wouldn't go that far. I get your optimism, Mike. I'm not trying to take away from it. The potential's there, <laughs> but I, I would not throw Ojolari under the label of Batman. I, I didn't so call all three of them Batman. I no, just no, said you didn't. I wasn't referring to you, Paul. I, okay. I was responding more towards the caller. Mike was getting into yeah. the ballpark of maybe they've got two Batmen on each side of the ball. Right? Right, Mike, uh, I believe I'm let's, quoting let's, you accurately. I'll take that on, though, Lance. I'm going to okay. take that on because... Uh, that's fine. You because, can do that. And, I, I'm not, here's, once here's again, I'm not trying to be a Debbie Downer. I'm just saying that I wouldn't go so far with what you're insinuating, is all I'm saying. Well, all I'm saying, let me, I'll, let me tell you why I say I'll take that on. Because last year, Ojolari got eight sacks as, as a rookie. Okay? And he didn't have that much playing time. And so um, maybe I'm being overly optimistic. I did feel like a, a lot of his sacks were effort sacks. They weren't on clean, mm-hmm. you know, moves to beat the guy and get to the quarterback mm-hmm. in under two and a half seconds kind of thing. But eight sacks is eight sacks as a rookie. That is, that's no joke. Sure. So, you know, and, and uh, I, when I look at Kip, uh, Thibodeau, you know, of course, number five overall, um, the physical traits are there to be really excited for him. I love the fact that he thinks Big Cat Michael Strahan is, you know, his is his uh, ideal because Strahan was such a stud for us. Um, but you know, I, I do think you know when you look at eight sacks as as a as a rookie, there's not a lot of guys who did that, right? No, it's a very solid number. But you know, once again, I'm more of where I'm coming from, Mike. Just to add more layers to this conversation is. It's not about flashing for a year. It's about proving you could do it consistently. Mm-hmm. That, to me, is how you get the label of Batman, as Paul likes to utilize, okay? Batman doesn't show up for a day or two, okay? Batman shows <laughs> up multiple years. You always know you have the protector there, okay, to take this parallel to crazy land. I don't even know why I'm going there, but I am. <laughs> Whereas, you know, Leonard Williams, for example, okay, and Leonard actually is a good other player to bring it to this conversation. Leonard had double-digit sacks two years ago, Mike, and I'm not saying you're one of them, but, Paul, you would recall we got calls when we were speculating in the preseason and projecting stats. A lot of people were arguing, oh, Leonard's, get, Leonard's penciled in for 10 sacks. It's not even a question. And I said, do you know the only other interior defensive lineman that has had multiple consecutive double-digit sack seasons in the current NFL is Aaron Donald, okay? That's all you need to know. You're putting him in Aaron Donald territory, and I said, be cautious that it's possible his numbers dip. And what happened? No, I'm not saying Leonard didn't play hard, but Leonard's numbers dipped. And also, he had never had a double-digit sack season, Mike, even when you go back to his Jets tenure. So that's the reason why 
I'm being a little cautiously optimistic you know, in terms of where you're coming from. Interesting about <laughs> Williams is that he had a career-high 81 tackles and played the run extremely well. But you're right, Lance. He did not get to the quarterback as much. And I think that was, to be frank with you, kind of a a, a, uh, a circumstance surrounding the fact that the Giants really did not have anybody else who could get home. I think there was so much attention paid to him after he had 11 and a half sacks the year before that they made sure to lock down on Williams as a pass rusher. And that hurt him. Oh, you're right. And, and, and I will I'll add this to you, too. You know, it's interesting you brought up Strahan because, obviously, Thibodeau was looking to him as a mentor. I would say Thibodeau compares a lot more as a player to OCU Manura than he does to Michael sure. Strahan. Yeah, the the first step. I mean, OC had the fastest first step I remember seeing. That's called the get-off. That That's I the really get-off. Watched. Yeah, the get-off yeah. at the snap. OC had the best get-off of any New York Giants player uh, on the defensive line that I've ever seen. Of course, Lawrence Taylor is yeah. unmatched by any human being ever. But uh, OC had the best get-off of any defensive end I've ever seen for the Giants. And Thibodeau has a lot of that OC in him. So can I ask a question and throw a wish list at you before I go? Sure, yeah, real quick. What do you got? Uh, so last year injuries, devastating. So hoping we're going to revert to the mean. Um, so of these guys... Are any of them not going to make camp? Blake Martinez, Aaron Robinson, Nick Gates, Matt Pert, Shane Lemieux. Of all of those guys, meaning is there a possibility that somebody doesn't make the roster? Is that... No, I just mean being, being healthy for training camp. Oh, being healthy? Well, Aaron Robinson, I don't think there's a major concern. No, not Paul, at all. I mean, he came back late last season. I'm kind so of I surprised at your yeah. list because you got a few guys there who I don't have any doubt about. Well, I think Nick Gates is still questionable, Paul. No, yeah, isn't that I fair? Agree, I, mean, I agree. Nick Gates warrants. Le- Lemieux was a full participant at the voluntary minicamp. So I would nice. wipe him off the list. Wipe Robinson off the list. I forget who else. Well, Blake Martinez was out there. And, I mean, Martinez got hurt early last season. So, I mean, I think there's certainly confidence. A lot of that confidence. He could very well come back for the beginning of the season. He's I been around Nick- during the offseason yeah. program. And trust me, he's very confident that he'll be fine for opening day. Yeah, Nick Gates, to me, is the one that you could say far from a lock because of the significant nature of the injury. And if you remember when Nick Gates met with the media as the season ended, he couldn't even put a definitive timeline or timetable on when he was going to return. So if the player himself is not going to do it, that's more of a reason to keep it in question. And I think given the timing of Matt Parrott's uh, Parrott's injury, I think think you could probably realistically say – He's more of a midseason expectation. I think it would be an awful uh-huh. lot and a Herculean effort for him to come back by training camp. I, I don't see how that could happen. But, again, uh, everybody heals individually in a different manner. But, but I think realistically, he'd be more midseason. Yeah, and to, just to uh, adjust your list, Mike, I would put, and I'm not saying that he's not going to be available, but I would substitute Sterling Shepard for Aaron Robinson. I think that makes more sense mm-hmm. considering Shepard got hurt, like Paul said, with Matt Parrott late last season. I agree. I forgot about that. But I will say having Blake Martinez back, that just adds to my optimism. So, right, here's my wish list, and then I'm out. Appreciate the time. Is for Ahmed Bradshaw to come back and coach Saquon Barkley on how to block. <laughs> okay. Uh, is there anything else on the wish list, or that's it? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. 
Yeah. Oh, there's other things, but that that's my number one thing. I that's want to see Saquon okay. learn how to block. Well, we will we will see if uh, Ahmad Bradshaw is available uh, amongst his other activities as he is post playing days <laughs> in terms of what he's doing. And we appreciate okay. the uh, phone call. Something tells me that they have other people on staff, Mike, that uh, I think can handle uh, tweaking and teaching Saquon Barkley to improve in that department. That's why they do have an actual running backs coach from that standpoint. I don't know if they need to bring in former Giants to handle that business. Let's head back to the phone lines. We check in with Tyler on Long Island. He joins us here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. What's happening, Tyler? Hey, what's going on, guys? How you guys doing? Hi. Doing all right. What do you got for us? Uh, you guys kind of touched on it a little bit already today, but I just wanted to talk about how nice it is, uh, the breath of fresh air between the difference in the old regime and the new regime. You look at Dave Gettleman in the draft in the past, and it's kind of a GM-dominated draft. You know, he never trades back. He drafts defensive tackles. You look at this new regime. You look at the Robinson pick, Kafka influence. You look at the Thibodeau. We probably could have got a Quano, but you think Wink Bartendale had a say in that? Um, it's just a nice breath of fresh air to, to see the difference in the collaboration in the, in the, um, the new regime and the past old regime. What do you guys think about that? I well, mean, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. Yeah, no, no, go no, ahead. No, I, I, I think without being in the war room, it's kind of difficult for me to, to give you an honest answer. I, I don't get to go in the war room during the draft, but I will say this. Uh, the fact that the general manager and the head coach both came from a Buffalo organization that was very, very, very much um, chemistry-wise together certainly helps. I, I can't imagine that the fact that Shane and Dable have worked together for several years, I can't imagine that that was an impediment in any way. Lance? Yeah, I think you bring up a great point, Paul, and I think that can't be overlooked, Tyler. Not to take anything away from the previous regime, but you had a GM and a head coach that had no history together. So it's understandable that considering, and by the way, it's not just Paul, them going back to Buffalo. It's Shane and Dable being together in Miami. And sure. I know Shane wasn't the general manager, but he understood Dable's thinking. Mm -hmm. And also a number of the coaches that Dable brought over have a history with Shane and Dable. So you're talking about the depth of the relationships, Tyler, goes far deeper than I think anything we've seen in the previous coaching staffs and regimes. And that's natural to say that they understand the type of players they're looking for. They understand the scheme because they've been together. But to go so far to say that other coaches had no say or influence on previous picks, I would not go that far, Tyler, because we've heard plenty of conversations in which they would look over the film. Every coaching staff does this. They would give their feedback to the front office. So I wouldn't say that coaches didn't have nearly as much input, but I just think the fabric the strength of the relationship was a lot stronger coming in than what we've seen previously. And that, to me, is the yeah, biggest I'm, difference. Sorry, I'm not saying that they didn't have any say in the old regime, but I don't know. You, you really think Jason Garrett's uh, had that big of an influence in last year's draft? Uh, you know, also the Bellinger pick this year, Dable is very specific in what he wants in tight ends. I think the Robinson pick is right up Kafka's alley, coming from the Chiefs' offense. Mm -hmm. offense. And sure. then the Thibodeau pick, you got to – sorry, yeah, the Thibodeau pick. You know, we're sitting there there at five. We could have got a Quano, and who knows if we had, you know, the Giants had a Quano higher than Neil. But you have to think Wink Barndale had a, a little say and say, hey, listen, this guy could be a generational pass rusher. 
obviously Shane knows that as well, but you have to think this guy has a little more, uh, he had a little more influence. And it just seems a very noticeable collaboration in this regime. Um, Caller, I'll say this, whatever the level of collaboration or cooperation has been in the past between the personnel department and the coaching staff, I, I will say this with all certainty, Shane stressed that part of the deal every time he talked about this draft going in and even after the draft was over. He made a special point of emphasis to talk about the collaboration and the symmetry uh, so how much more percentage-wise was there? I, I don't know any of us can put a number on it, but I think it's fair to say that he did stress it. And appreciate the phone call, Tyler. Thanks so much for joining us here on the program. The other thing with respect to the last caller's comments, Paul, about Wink having a great deal of influence in the selection of Kayvon Thibodeau, I go back to what Joe Shane had mentioned. Shane had mentioned that they thought there was a significant drop-off at pass rusher after Thibodeau. So yes. not to take anything away from Wink, but as they put their board together and they got feedback from the scouts, the front office, the coaching staff, I don't know if it was Wink that ultimately put his stamp on that. I think overall, as a group, mm-hmm. if Shane is saying they thought there was a drop-off, then why does Wink have to bang his hands on the table <laughs> for Thibodeau, right? I don't think I, he had to. No, I don't think he did because I think they were all in agreement saying we have to take the pass rusher here because the offensive linemen are much closer. Whereas if it's more even, let's say Thibodeau versus the next edge rusher is much closer. Okay, Paul? And mm-hmm. once again, there's a hypothetical conversation. And the offensive linemen are closer. Then I could see you have an assistant coach or Dable come in and maybe pull their influence in breaking the tie because you really could go either way under those circumstances. Well, Lance, let's put it this way. You know, again, I go back to what you and I had said all along going in. If you can pound your fist on the table and have conviction about certain guys – and if there's enough of them there, that you've got to make the picks at five and seven. I figured in looking at the draft board, they could perhaps have that feeling about as many as eight guys, which is why I thought they really needed to make the picks at five and seven. And I think you felt, again, you felt the same way. Whether or not you had the same rationale uh, and you thought they were eight guys or not, we may differ. But you had the same philosophy. Well, Joe Shane came out and told everybody after the draft, we had six guys, okay? Six guys who we felt were separate from everybody else, and they got two of the six guys. He said, we were prepared to make a pick at number seven. We had a contingency plan. We had a number seven, and we were certainly willing to pick that number seven if the other six guys were off the board and we could not make a deal to provide the kind of value that they wanted. And again, we all believe that that value would have been a first-round pick. So when you go back and review that, you say, well, they had six bang-your-fist-on-the-table players, and they got two of them. I don't know that you could ace it any better than that. No, it played out beautifully because you protected yourself with respect to the offensive line, knowing that you'd still have some options, regardless of what Carolina does. Whereas if you didn't take Thibodeau, and let's say Carolina took him, or something else happened via trade, then, okay, you could still get perhaps another player who you think highly of, but you may not be able to go edge rusher, assuming that obviously the drop-off is there. 
So you're not going to then settle right for the next edge rusher because it doesn't warrant that level of a pick. Mm -hmm. So that's why I think, you know, certainly things played out at least according to plan. And that goes back to Joe Shane saying they simulated a lot of these scenarios. One other thing real quickly that I just want to add, why I wouldn't go so far to say that coaches didn't have some influence in previous picks before we reopen up the phone lines. They took Kadarius Toney last year with the first round pick and that came after of course they made the trade to gain some additional assets but if we go based on some of the other players we were looking at remember Cole Beasley was in Dallas Paul before he went to Buffalo so he was with Jason Garrett and I'm not saying Tony and Beasley are 100% duplicates that's not what I'm insinuating but if you were looking for a type of player who you could get the ball out into open space and, you know, be tough to tackle. Garrett has as much exposure to Beasley as you could say Brian Dable and Buffalo did from that standpoint. Sure. And something tells me that Garrett probably would have liked a guy like Andrew Thomas to help out on the offensive line when he and Joe Judge and the entire coaching staff arrived in 2020. I'm so, pretty sure I mean, that everybody wanted Andrew Thomas. Well, of course, that no. Rule. So, th- so that's why that's why I just I want to be careful in saying that I previous regimes coaches didn't have influence and say. I just think it's more of the relationships mm-hmm. are far stronger as we laid out. That's a broad brush that none of us Correct. should paint. Exactly. And that's the only reason why I just thought it was important to look at some of the previous picks because the last caller brought up if you look at other picks and I just I wouldn't go so far to make that type of a generalization. All right, let's head back to the lines. We've got Cliff in New York joining us here on BBKL. What's happening, Cliff? Hi, guys. Thanks so much. Uh, You've been so helpful to me today about my concerns and also, Paul, on the night of the draft, right after the picks. That was very reassuring. Um, Thank you. uh, Yes, sure. My my concern is still uh, with the D-line. I I noticed that in your poll, uh, you know, 10% of the – of the respondents cared about that. That's uh, there's no question that Joe aced the draft. You know, in the situation that he was in. My question is, um, um, uh, it's good to hear that that Kayvon, uh, has a ways to go to to be the DE, and and that in the meantime he's DE. Um, <laughs> but uh, um, my biggest disappointment was in the third round after we made our first pick, and I was thinking, okay. I want my guy Travis Jones from Connecticut at, at 81, and he goes to the Ravens at 76. That was that was my worst moment of the night. Um, I liked uh, I liked um, Wandale uh, after I heard from Sean O'Hara saying that he was physical, because I've I've been I've been looking for that. That was the word I heard a lot from Coach Coughlin, and uh, uh, we kind of updated from Parcells last week from power to physical to get more modern. Um, but um, I, I, I saw his tape, uh, the, the Wandale tape that was on the website, and, and uh, he, he didn't uh, do such a great job getting away from the defensive back that already had a hold of him, but when he was heading for the goal line and he banged into somebody, he, he did not get tackled, and he went on into the end zone. And that, that to me, is and this guy has the potential to, to approach Steve Smith. I don't want to put any burdens on expectations but uh, all in all, um, I was very happy, and I really appreciated your talk today about the linebackers uh, at the end of the draft because that was one of my two holes. And uh, so I'm still kind of stuck on the D-line, and uh, I'm on a steep learning curve with uh, Coach Martindale's defense. I don't know if that's any less important than it ever was, but uh, how much of a drop-off did we get 
from not getting Travis Jones and ending up with um, DJ Davidson. Davidson. Yeah. And, and um, you know, how much in general... Uh, uh, oh, by the way, I, I noticed that Joe Shane didn't get the the 10 or 11 or 12 guys that he thought he might have that he was looking for, and he barely got seven. That's why he aced the situation, you know. Also, I I have to mention I'm very unhappy the Eagles got Jordan Davis. I don't think there was any way we were going to get him. But as you can see, I'm kind of focused on the line, the D-line, because traditionally that's how we won, you know. All right, let me give you two answers real quick. In terms of Robinson, just to give you an idea in terms of his strength and his physicality, because remember – he did play some halfback earlier in his career, and he yep. also can return kicks. So he's not afraid of getting hit, and he's certainly going to take people on from a physical perspective. From a strength perspective, and I know this is only one part of the equation, he bench-pressed 19 reps. At the Combine, Isaiah Weston of Northern Iowa led all receivers with 20 reps. I hope that makes you feel better. Oh, yeah. Okay. No, I have no. All right. Yeah. Now, and secondly, about DJ, DJ uh, Johnson. Um, DJ Dave Davidson. 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 Yeah. DJ Davidson. Comes out of an Arizona State program, and you may remember a great giant was on that coaching staff, Antonio Pierce. Oh. Uh, so let me just say the Giants had a lot of intel on this player. And from what I understand, he is a upside Arrow pointing up, getting better every year. Physical, strong, run-stuffing plugger in the middle. Going to be a terrific nose tackle, they believe, uh, a year or so down the road. He is not so much a guy you're going to look for this year unless he's a he's a quick riser and, and winds up stealing some reps from uh, uh, Jordan Ellis, who they signed from the Ravens. Because he right. brings familiarity, Justin Ellis. Yeah. Justin Ellis. Yeah. He brings familiar. I'm doing a Feagles here. Just, <laughs> okay. Justin Ellis. Well, Jordan Davis was brought up, so you know exactly. Everybody's mixing and matching. Justin Ellis brings the Ravens mentality and the schematics to this team more from an intangibles and mental perspective. Okay, I think he's here for that one year as a one year stopgap to help those elements. I believe that Davidson is the guy who they believe long-term, you're going to look more from him in 2023, from what I understand, as opposed to getting something out of him this year. Yeah, Ellis is the guy that knows the system, so a guy like Marnendale can utilize him sort of as an extension of the coaching staff because he can help implement his scheme. We've seen a lot of defensive coordinators, they bring in somebody associated with the defense year one to, once again, help them lay the foundation, and then you can allow the young guy to all of a sudden step in. Davidson, to me, the way I describe him, Cliff, is he's a late bloomer. First of all, he's going to be a 25-year-old rookie, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing because he was out of football in 2016, and then he redshirted 2017. He didn't start playing at Arizona State until 18, and that's why I think he hasn't really reached his true potential, but he's older because he didn't play early in his college career because of some academic reasons, and then obviously he redshirted. Wow. So, you know, that you have to take into consideration. But as far as, you know, being a sack guy, I don't look at him no, that no, no, way. No, 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 He doesn't have any of that, that's important. Correct. It's more of a guy no. in the middle taking up space and so forth. But he still, once again, is developing because, once again, I would view him as a very late bloomer. Large, powerful, two-down-run-stuffing plugger. That's what you got there. 
Okay. Oh, I, I didn't mind that Dalvin Tomlinson didn't get sacks because he would knock down passes sometimes. And, and I think he was con- I think he got sure, pressures. But, I don't know. Well, well, but Cliff, the reason I'm bringing up the sack is because you brought up Travis Jones. Jones yes. would have given you some sacks. Mm-hmm. Okay? Yes. So that's the difference between him and Davidson if you okay. want to make the comparison. Yeah, he had some more penetration skills. Exactly. Yes. But I thought Leonard's sack uh, total was going to go down as soon as Dalvin left. I, I assumed that. Well, that, I brought that, that up this offseason. Yeah, yeah, yeah you did. That was the exact point. You I did. said the absence of Tomlinson. Paul, you and I went yep. back and forth on that. You remember. Yeah. And, and I oh, said, I be it. cautious of that. Yeah. I was uh, I, uh, I was really hopeful that Danny Shelton would give them something, and he was and just— And the phone call. Oh, Cliff. my Thanks goodness. Thanks so much for weighing in. What a disappointment yeah. that turned out to be. Well, and, and that's why, Paul— once again, I'm not trying to revisit the conversations, right. but whenever – well, I'm not looking to be right. The point is, whenever <laughs> you remove – no, I'm, I'm serious. I'm not looking to be right. I'm not looking to declare a winner. It's just – it goes back to the conversation we had with a previous caller with respect to the optimism and Batman labels. I go – I'm a prove-it-show-me type of guy, Paul, mm-hmm. okay? And whenever you take one player out of the equation who I've seen for three or four years and then you bring in a new player who – wasn't with the defense, who I understand had some familiarity with Joe Judge and Graham for his New England days. You just you can't guarantee that the production stays as is with no fluctuation. So that's what in the back of my mind I was always thinking. And that's, unfortunately well, for the Giants' sake, how things played out. So but, but it's no the, different with these rookies who are even more unproven because you can't guarantee sure. that their college production is going to transfer the over. Truth that is, was my point. You didn't have to worry about double-teaming Shelton. You did have to do that with Tomlinson. Absolutely. And that's, yeah. that's just the, that's the blatant facts. Well, and those are the intangibles, yep. Paul, of yep. what happens when you change personnel. It, yep. It's not the stat sheet. It's what you just talked about. It's the dynamics of how a coordinator views the player opposite the offensive lineman. How much attention do you need to bring towards that player? If you're not going to bring as much attention, then – you can't tell me that all of a sudden that's not going to have some impact no, in terms of the level no of production. No question. I just thought Shelton would bring more to the table and command a little bit more respect that he did. Turned out he didn't. And that's, that's where that whole equation fell apart. Anyway. Let, yeah. Let's head back to the phone lines as we continue to check in with some of our callers. Feedback on the 2022 NFL draft class with the Giants bringing in 11 players. And let's check in with Neil in New York, who joins us. What's happening, Neil? Hello, guys. Hi. How are you doing, Neil? Uh, well, I just wanted uh, my main question was about rookie minicamp. Uh, but um, I just wanted to say a couple of things. First, I love Thibodeau. I mean, the interviews, this is just a confident guy and not an overconfident guy. I know there were <clears throat> question marks about his character. And let me tell you, he's 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 a good guy. He's a great guy. Um, point number two is, uh, I think you might get a little bit out of Jaron Williams this year uh, in the secondary. I thought he played very well last year as a rookie, a kid out of Albany. Mm-hmm. And my third. He is small. He is small. Showed some flashes, but we don't know what the new coaching staff thinks about him. Well, his grade was very good on pro football focus. Uh, I don't think you really want to go there, but that's okay. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to use that as a justification, Neil, only because the coaching staff that's coming in, I could tell you they're not going to look at just pro football focus and make their decision based on that. Okay. So that's all. 
That's all I have access to, you know. No, no, um, I understand. I'm not faulting you, but I think you have to at least put that in perspective that something tells me Wink Martindale, they're going to see the player up close and personal at practice right. and then in preseason, and, and that will determine whether or not they justify utilizing him yeah. as opposed to what Patrick Graham right. did. And in I, but, I, yeah. but I liked him watching him in-game. Okay, I, I really like that kid, and I really think he'll surprise um, and make the squad and play a lot. Uh, now, my question is, <clears throat> what happens at rookie minicamp when you don't have a single quarterback? Like, are you limited to rookies? Because none of the UDFAs are a quarterback. I believe Lewerke is eligible to participate because he doesn't have any veteran experience on his, on his uh, resume. So Le- Brian Lewerke... Uh, would be one quarterback for sure. Uh, they may wind up bringing in another guy just to be able to throw. Remember, at the rookie minicamp, you can have guys come in who are not signed. They can be tryouts also. Yep. So right, I right. trust. Look, if worst comes to worst, Lance and I will go out there and throw. <laughs> well, well, hold on. They also have members of the well, coaching listen. staff. Mike Kafka. I hate to break it to you, <laughs> yeah, Neil. Mike Kafka is a former NFL quarterback. Okay, <laughs> something throw. tells me. Something tells me he has a little bit more mileage still on the arm that yeah. he can make a few throws. He's not so, that old. Yeah. Well, you know, you know the uh, and the other little shot at. at uh, you Rookie know, minicamp, by the way, it. begins May thirteenth. Just for those of you oh, out there who don't I know, I can't wait. I can't wait. Um, wow, you may be but, more excited uh, than Paul about rookie minicamp. I didn't think I'd ever live to see that's, well, look, that's hard to believe. <laughs> I know. I never heard somebody, I can't wait for rookie minicamp. <laughs> that's next up on the to-do list. No, right? I understand I mean, you know, that. You're right, I mean, my man. You're you know, right. Let them know. Mind, Tell there's them only going to be so many guys that actually make the team from rookie minicamp. So. And then there's OTAs, baby. Yeah, can't wait oh, for those, too. We opened I mean, up a whole can of worms now. It's a, a year-round activity for me. And um, that's what's next, you know. So, All right, Neil. Um, well, we appreciate one, the phone call. Yeah, well, real quick, what one, else you got? One final comment, if I may. Did you see what Carson Strong got from the Eagles to be an unrestricted free agent? A very healthy signing bonus, if that's what you're referring to. $320,000. Mm-hmm. We don't. Gettleman left us. I don't think we have 320000 for our whole. Uh, <laughs> Unrestricted. All right. Well, All right. <laughs> well, I mean, on a serious note, I mean, that's why when we were talking earlier, and we appreciate the phone call, Neil, we had mentioned that resources when it comes to undrafted free agents plays a role because some guys are going to go where they can get some bonus money in terms of the contract. Interestingly, not only did the Eagles sign Carson Strong, they also brought in EJ Perry, a player that I'm very familiar with out of Brown who is that also mobile, athletic type of quarterback. And I think clearly the Eagles, my takeaway is, not to get completely off topic, but they're looking to bring in quarterbacks that are similar to Jalen Hurts' skill set. So in case he gets hurt or whatever it may be, you have somebody that can help run that offense. I think that's another trend. Baltimore, Tyler Huntley resembles Lamar Jackson in terms of his skill set. That's why, and I'll bring this back to the Giants, Paul, what did we talk about Tyrod Taylor? the mobility factor to maybe do things that Daniel Jones could do as opposed to last year when you go from Daniel Jones to Mike Glennon and it's not a similar skill set. It's important Mm -hmm. you have a backup quarterback that you're never going to get somebody that's identical, but at least get somebody that maybe models the skill set 
so you don't have to completely revamp your offense. Talk about how these bonus numbers have gone through the roof. I remember there was a big to-do made, oh, about 20 years ago when Tony Romo was coming out as an undrafted rookie free agent, and the Broncos wanted to lure him from the Cowboys. He wound up signing a $10,000 signing bonus to join Dallas, and Denver was all miffed because they had offered $25,000, which was an unbelievably rich, unheard of signing bonus to an undrafted rookie free agent. And now we hear Carson Strong getting over three hundred grand. <laughs> man, yeah. oh man, have times changed. 100%. That's why it's a competition. I mean, it really is. Undrafted free agency is a competition. You're picking up the phone. Did you establish a relationship? How much money can you offer? There's agents involved. It's almost a little bit of the wild, wild west, for the lack of a better phrase. Lance, uh, the, those in the industry, in the league, they call it the eighth round. The difference is there's no pecking order. Well, it's that's all what I was going to say. It's all about your wallet. <laughs> well, well, that's why it's the wild, wild west to me. There's no organization. <laughs> there's no order. I was waiting for you to use that phrase because I was like, listen, if you call that the eighth round, I don't even think round justifies what goes on yeah. there. Well, so. it's more like an eighth round battle royal, Royal Rumble, Rumble Steel Cage, okay. Star Cage yeah. match is what I'll, it is. I'll, I'll perhaps go with that as opposed to the uh, <laughs> earlier installment of that. Let's uh, head back to the lines. Kevin is in Florida. He joins us here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. What's happening, Kevin? Hey, good afternoon, guys. Uh, if you want to have a little fun, when you see Dane Belton, ask him what he thinks of Wondell Robinson after he absolutely carved Ira up in the Citrus Bowl for 10 catches, three on the game-winning drive, mm-hmm. including one that got the ball down to the one-yard line. Yeah. And if you look at the highlights of that game, he wasn't just in the – he was catching passes over the middle. And those Iowa defensive backs forever have hit like a ton of brick. And I don't think he missed a play. And uh, Robinson is fearless. Is, Make that clear. If that's if that's what you're trying to get to, you're right. He's a fearless player. It not not only is he a fearless player, he hung on to the ball in that particular game. You know, I'm a Southeastern Conference guy. I'm a I'm a Florida Gator. You know, many many years ago, and uh, everybody down here knows all about him. And I think a lot of people probably, and I'm in up in the Northeast, do not know a lot about, especially Kentucky football. But I can tell you right now that this guy is very well worthy of the draft that the Giants put on him. He is not, he was not overdrafted. Well, Ken, I don't even have to, I don't mean to cut you off, we don't have to keep you at the edge of your seat because actually Belton was already asked about his connection to Robinson. I'm going to read you, this (laughs) was the conference call. You're going to like this. Yeah, the the first question was, I I didn't realize that. Yeah, well, that's why I was was bringing it up as you said it because I remember distinctly him being asked. The question was, I may be wrong, but did you get a chance to play against Wondell Robinson? His response, quote, yes, I played against him multiple times when he was at Nebraska and also my last game when he was at Kentucky, which you just referenced. Because remember, he was at Nebraska prior, so they were fellow Big Ten players with Belton coming from Iowa. Then the follow-up question was, so what's the scouting report on him? Belton responded, quote, he's a really good player, a shifty guy, gets in and out of breaks, a playmaker. He made a lot of plays against us the past few years, so a really good football player, end quote. So there he is on the yeah, record I, about Robinson. Yeah, and that was a bowl game that he put those numbers up. That wasn't, yep. mm-hmm. you know, one of these. Uh, well, of course, because they that, weren't that conference rivals at that games. point. Yeah. Well, Robinson put so up I, a lot I, of numbers I, last year against everybody. <laughs> he <laughs> set all types of records. 104 catches. Yeah. He was yeah. third you know, in the country. Unfortunately for him, those those Nebraska teams that he were on were dreadful teams. And uh, 
probably didn't really get a chance to show much. But, you know, they didn't also in Kentucky, you know, they didn't have uh, Aaron Rodgers, a quarterback. They had a nice guy, Will Lovis, who was, who was good. Iowa had pressure on this guy all day. And yet this guy was able to able to get the job done. And I'll, I'll tell you, I, I really think that, uh, you know, I, he wasn't as widely, you know, you know, promoted as some of the other guys. But I think we're going to fall in love with this guy during the course of the season. I really do. Well, and I think, Kevin, that also is good news for the Giants, not to say that they didn't try to improve the offensive line, but if you're not relying on him, and I think this is why he had success in Kentucky, you weren't looking for him to make the home run plays where he ran down the field 50 to 60 yards and the quarterback needed time to get it to him. You dumped it off to him, and then you let him do all the heavy lifting. So there's no reason why Daniel Jones can't dump it off to him, and then if the blocking cooperates, you do a lot of damage that way. Yeah, he's going to do that, and I also think there are times he's going to stretch the defense a little bit. I, I think he just brings a little bit of everything. He's a little small, and there are going to be some limitations, and he's not going to go up and contest balls against six-foot-three corners. But sure. I, I'll tell you what, I, I think Dayball is probably salivating at how he can work him into situations and you know openings, and uh, I, he, I think he's going to become a fan favorite very quickly. All right, Kevin. Well, we appreciate the phone call. It is interesting in terms of some of the connections with the players. You have, first of all, two teammates from North Carolina that are joining the Giants. And Mm -hmm. then we talked about Robinson and Belton going up against one another because of their ties to the Big Ten. It's it's a small world. I think that's been well established with respect to coaches that know each other, players that cross over with coaches, especially those that come from the collegiate level. But uh, Robinson is a playmaker. And what are the Giants in need of? They're in need of a playmaker, and then some. So he fits the bill from that standpoint. And the other thing that Dable brought up, and this goes back to you know, people that are a bit skeptical in terms of the duplication of him, Tony, and Shepard, is if I have it correctly, Paul, Dable said that he thinks he could put him a little bit on the outside at times. He did I mention that. I remember him that. distinctly saying that at the presser. He did mention that. I, I, I'd like to see it. I'm, I'm a bit perplexed. I, I, I don't know that, that he's going to be able to deal with some of the bigger corners outside who may just envelope him. But if Dable says they think they can do it, well, then let's see it. I, I will say this. I was talking to a veteran football guy uh, the other day, and I said to him, boy, think about this for a minute. What happens if you're the defensive coordinator and all of a sudden you line up Robinson and Tony next to each other in the slot? Or for that matter, one in the left slot, one in the right slot, or maybe in a two-receiver stack, or as part of a three-receiver bunch with Galladay. You, you could create some very interesting looks for a defense uh, and understanding that both Tony and Robinson require someone who's got great flexibility, quicks, great hip turn and movement, and, and quick footwork and steps. You know, there's a lot of, of secondaries who might not be able to match up against that. Well, and the other guy you didn't name, what about Saquon? If well, you line and, him up, right? Well, and, and there's absolutely no reason to think that Saquon won't be out in some pass routes this year. Trust me. Yeah, so I think the common element here is Barkley, because I'm removing Galladay from this equation, because Galladay is more of a typical wide receiver. I, I don't think you're going to look to get him out of the backfield and you know do the work that way. But Barkley, Tony, and Robinson, you have three guys who can line up in the backfield, can be in the slot, 
can be a weapon where you don't need to necessarily have them go deep down the field. So if you do want to put, to your point, multiple players that fit that bill on the field at the same time, you certainly give defenses something to think about. But most important, Paul, you're also forcing defenses to have to tackle when you have guys like that on the field, assuming you could get them the football. Because I remember, once again, it's a small sample size, but if you ask the Cowboys and even the Saints, when that was really the first glimpse of Tony being on the field for a good portion of time, some of those guys, after the fact, they were like, you know, you could watch them on film all you want until you see them, right, in person. You start to realize, whoa, okay, this is a little bit different than what I'm used to doing. Yeah. So I think when you get a lot of those guys out of the field, you really give a rude awakening to the defense. And I think you want them to think like that as opposed to thinking, all right, there's going to be a guy that's just going to run a typical route and we can run our defense and we don't have to worry about the breakaway speed after the fact. I'll tell you what, Lance, this will surprise you and probably a lot of other people out there, but I'm going to say it here as we get ready to close out this program. The Giants are going to become a much more progressive offense than we have ever seen before. That's what Dable and Kafka bring to the table. It's part of their DNA. We better get used to it. I already saw things at the voluntary minicamp, the way that they were lining guys up, the routes that they were running. I said, okay, this is different. We're going to aisle five of the supermarket instead of aisles one and two. Yeah. And, and folks, when you see things at training camp, hopefully you'll be allowed to watch. And when we get to the preseason and then when we get to the regular season, you will continue time after time to shake your head and say, oh, wow, that's the Giants? Uh, things, things are changing here. This, this, this offense is jumping ahead with much more creativity and innovation than you've ever seen before. Uh, a guy like me, an old school guy, I got to get used to it because this flavor is the new flavor. And, and the Giants hopefully will, will still maintain some of that old identity because I'd rather see a mixture than just going hog wild crazy into video game football. But if that's what the Giants do and it works, well, then God bless them. They made the right decision. So we're just going to have to let it play out and see how much of this they decide to use and how far do they go to the other side of the dial. Sure, but it still always comes back to the basics and some of that old school flavor. I hope when so. You're talking, well, especially when you're talking about some short yardage situations, well, things where maybe you're not going to think that much outside the, the box. The funny part about it is Buffalo's in a much colder, nastier environment in November and December than we are, and yet we know how progressive they were. Now, maybe not as progressive as Kansas City because their weather tends to hold up and is a little bit more mild, so maybe not that far, but Buffalo... Buffalo's, Buffalo's got it pretty nasty and cold in the wintertime, and sure. that didn't stop them from becoming more innovative. Well, but I think the other common element between both of those teams, and this is the last thought here before we wrap up, not to take anything away from Daniel Jones, and I understand he's an athlete, he has a mobile factor, but we are talking about two of the top elite quarterbacks that were running those offenses. Yes. So regardless of the weather you're in, Paul, when you have Mahomes and Allen steering the ship, it makes you at least feel a little bit better in terms of calling those things because of the level of execution and how they've been doing it for multiple seasons. I don't think Daniel Jones is there. The Giants certainly hope he could get there, but that's going to obviously indicate how far they're willing to go with respect to you mm -hmm. bringing up the creative component. Agreed. Lance, real quick, offense. 
All I right, just want yeah. to say on those last days, my part of my job was just cutting highlights for some of these guys. And I got to say the people that jumped out to me was Robinson just definitely not being able to be tackled. Like he seems yeah. sh- like whether he's short or not, like he is strong. And then I would say Beavers and McFadden were the next guys where they were just tackling everyone and no one was getting by them. And it's no surprise, as we appreciate Pearson jumping in here, that we spent a good portion of the show talking about those three guys in particular. So I think uh, all three of us are on the same page based on what we've seen and what we've digested from that standpoint. All right, that is going to wrap up a very special recap draft edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live here on this Monday. We appreciate everybody tuning in to today's episode of Big Blue Kickoff Live, which is part of the Giants platforms everywhere and Giants.com slash podcast. So it'll be up and running again on Tuesday, but we're back to one hour from noon to 1 p.m. Eastern, and you can stay locked to Giants.com for all the latest as we'll continue to delve deeper and deeper into the draft class and look ahead to rookie minicamp, which is next on the schedule. For Paul Dottino, I'm Lance Meadow. Enjoy the rest of your Monday and stay locked to Giants.com for all the latest. We'll speak to you on Tuesday. Have a good one.